0: What's up, Chapel family? How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, you sound like it's raining outside. Hey, a lot of good stuff going on at Chapel. They hit a couple of those. This Wednesday is Sig Night. It's our first Sig Night, uh, I think, in over a year. So what is Sig Night? Sig Night is all about the presence of the Lord. It's not a worship, prayer, and a message that all kind of ties together. So we're going to be praying for our community, our church, for our families, our children. Uh, so our youth will be with us this Wednesday night and our kids. So it's a great chance for family worship. And let me encourage you, especially men, like your kids need to see you worshiping Jesus. They need to see you praying and seeking God's face. They need to see you in church. I know we have kids ministry, which is a great blessing, but this is a great opportunity for you to have your kids with you as you worship Jesus together. So that's coming up next Sunday is Vision Sunday. So I'm going to kind of unpack where we've been Uh, since March 2019. There was a little thing called COVID-19 that happened. And so since then, what has chapel been doing? How has chapel been moving forward? And what are we going to do to move forward in the next few years as a whole? So we're going to share that. And that following Sunday is Dream Again Sunday, which is all about the Dream Center. So we're going to share where the Dream Center is and where the Dream Center is going and how you and our community can be a part of seeing us make an impact in generational poverty here in the Shoals. So a lot of good stuff going on. If you have your Bibles, there's going to be a bunch of scriptures, but hold them up for me real quick so we can see them. This is the evangelism tool for you. Toya said, babe, I've been bringing my Bible to church last few weeks just for show because you keep asking. And you haven't asked since I started doing it. It's because Pharisees and hypocrites don't normally belong in church. <laughs> like this is God's word. Like it's your sword. If you can get used to holding and yielding your sword, you'll win a lot more battles that you face in life. We're going to share. You can actually turn to ro- uh, Revelation 13 because I'll be there towards the end. But this is our Q&A day, so I try to do this once a year because Jesus to me in the scriptures was incredible at answering the questions that people had. Whether it's Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he came to Jesus at nighttime and said, I have a question, how can a man be saved or what must I do to be saved? Or uh, Peter had questions, the Pharisees had questions. And many of the answers that we see are the answers we carry with us in life now. Like when a Pharisee asks, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, it is to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as your self. That was a question and answer. And so one of my desires to have a church where questions are okay, because questions, once they're answered, kind of remove an obstacle so we can move forward. And so it also, I believe, creates a hunger. And so all these questions came from people in our church who responded to the online form. And so I'm going to answer a few of these today. So question one starting real light and easy, is what is an explanation of the doctrine of predestination? Well, if I had that answer, I'd be the hero of the faith because people have been fighting over this for a thousand years. Um, But this is one of my favorite topics to discuss just because there's so much depth to it and so much knowledge to it. And um, so it's a real quick definition of the two. Predestination is a doctrine that states how God determines what will happen in human history According to His eternal will and pleasure, election is a subset of predestination, focusing specifically on God's sovereign choice of who will be included among His people. So many times, when people ask the question about predestination, what they're actually asking is the question of election. Meaning, okay, well, well, I know God knows everything and God's in control. We all we all believe that, but does God choose some people for heaven and then some people don't go to heaven? They go to hell. Like, what is that question? And so many times people get so caught up in this question, they miss Jesus and who Jesus is. Jesus is sovereign, yet he's loving and merciful. Jesus is all-knowing, but he's also all-loving. And so you can kind of break this down in two things. One, this argument is between decreeing something and foreknowledge, or Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism is with all these decrees. So Calvinism is denominations like the Presbyterians, um the reformed church sometimes baptist churches are reformed in nature or calvinistic in nature and so calvinism is built on decrees and even within the calvinist doctrine there's there's different levels or or exponential levels of calvinism so a decree is this that before the beginning of time god decreed who would be saved and who would not be saved that's called hyper calvinism he decrees those who are saved and those who are not saved then you have more of a modern form of Calvinism, so where God chooses who will be saved, but then he just passes over everyone else. What it's saying is God knows he's going to be saved because he chooses who's going to be saved. The other side of the equation is foreknowledge, which is Arminianism. Arminianism is usually the theological choice of Pentecostals, Charismatics, many Baptists, um, I think Church of Christ, Methodist, many uh, Pentecostal holiness, we can go through a whole bunch of lists, Armenians believe God is still sovereign and still God chooses who will be saved, but he chooses not after decree, chooses because of foreknowledge. Meaning God knows who will respond to the gospel, so that's who he de- decides to choose or elect. The other side of that is the, the balance between God's sovereignty and human free will. So many times some of you guys have, have heard of reformed people who they get caught up in Calvinist doctrine, they start living their life however they want to. Because they say, well, God chooses, God knows who's saved, who's not saved, so I can just live my life however I want to because I have no responsibility in it. Then the other side of the equation is human responsibility, where you can take it so far that, well, we're responsible for this, this, and this, that God is no longer God, and these two things are kind of combating each other. And so this has been a, a discovery zone for my life Uh, for at least the last 15 years. And so I want to help you understand. There's a couple of scriptures. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him. Everybody say chose us. So he definitely chooses. us. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Everybody say predestined he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which we, he has blessed us in the beloved so it's not a question of predestination and election it's how do we get to that point and that's where the human responsibility the free will goes so if you said what does the Bible say does the Bible say God is sovereign and chooses I would say yes If you ask, well, do we have a human responsibility to respond, I would say yes. In Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, it says this in verse 9. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not done, saying my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. That is God saying he's in charge and control of everything that happens in his creation. But then you go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life and that your offspring may live. So God's saying he's in charge and in control, but he's also saying I'm in charge and control and I've set these things before you. You may want to choose that which produces life. So there's this tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Most people just choose one or the other. We are a people, we embrace the tension and the radical middle, we call it, between the Word and the Spirit, but also between God's sovereignty and our free will. Meaning we trust God's sovereignty, but we respond correctly to His sovereignty. So the way I can explain it, one of my mentors, R.T. Kendall, who is a Calvinist, he said it this way, I was talking to him 15 years ago, and he said, He said, so many people feel like they have to choose between the two. You don't have to choose. There's a term in philosophy called antinomy. And Toya loves it when I say this because I sound smart. This word antinomy, you'll rarely find in any theological textbooks, even the dictionary, I think, barely has any references to it. Antinomy is this principle that you'd probably use in math that's where there's two parallel principles that will never intersect, God's sovereignty and our free will. So these are two parallel principles that no matter how far they go, they'll never cross over into each other's territory. Yet they're in perfect unity with one another. So it's this philosophical term. So you could say God's sovereignty and our free will. Most people choose whatever path they want to take. God chooses both. And when you choose both, what happens is I believe that is the process of maturity that happens with the believer. And as you choose both, our whole purpose in life is this Deuteronomy 30, it is to choose life. Walk in the life of God. Walk in the leadership of God. Walk in dependence of his Holy Spirit. Be submitted to his sovereignty. Be submitted to his kingship. Be submitted to him. Be submitted to his power. So the goal is that we're all walking in God's sovereignty. Yet we have free will, so the salvation call is to come under his lordship or come under his sovereignty. But our free will is we have to choose either to do that or reject that. So this is where I think the Christian walk is. I think we start in free will, God wants us to be submitted to his sovereignty, but we go through life in these peaks and valleys between our will and God's will. I think the more mature you become, the more you're submitted and walking in his complete power, his complete control, his complete sovereignty. The more fleshly you are is when you walk under your own authority, your own wisdom, your own choosing, your own decisions, your own abilities. But the goal of maturity is to stay as close to that top line as possible. That is the walk that we're trying to walk out. Question number 2. How can people who have never been exposed to Jesus or Christianity make it to heaven since they are never given their life to Christ? So this is heavy, because when I was an atheist, this was one of my problems with the church and with Christianity, is how come me, who I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, where Lifeway, the Southern Baptist Convention, is located, there's a church on every corner, how come I get to go to heaven just because of proximity and geography, but some kid born in maybe Pakistan or Iran do not get to go to heaven? And I really, I struggle with that tremendously. And the, one of the reasons I came to believe that I was okay with that was this, that I felt like God told me, he's like, don't curse the blessing that I've given you. What that means is, I was looking at this thing, it's not fair, God, that I have all these chances to be saved. People in Iran don't have any. He said, but you're walking in the generational blessings that your ancestors sacrificed for you. And you could trace that back 200 years, 300 years, to ancestors of mine left Europe and left everything they had. To come to America to access something that brought a blessing to me. Because the answer to this question is this in Romans 10. It says, How will then they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed What he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This should somber our consumer based, self centered, independent mindset, Christianity in America. That God has blessed the American church so much financially, with vision, with great leaders, with great churches, great organizations. But the scripture is saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Meaning, they cannot, out of the main orthodox theology of scripture, people who do not hear the gospel do not get to go to heaven. And he's saying, God is not responsible for that. The church is responsible for that. That he's given us access to resources and blessings to get the good news out, to send preachers out, to plant churches out, to send missionaries out, to send people out, to get the TV news out, to get the radio news out. They get the news out so people actually have a chance to hear the good news. So the question would be, what are you doing to help those who have never heard the gospel hear the gospel? The question shouldn't be, well, why would God do that? No, the question would be like, why are we okay with that? When there's people, me and Toya will be in Colorado this week at Joshua Nations, which is one of our main mission partners. Their sole focus is reaching into unreached people groups in Iran and Pakistan and Cuba and North Korea. Our church says, we understand the scripture. We're going to put money towards making sure we're not responsible for somebody never hearing the gospel. Next one, question three is... Why is there so much division between denominations if we all follow the same Bible? I'd answer that with another question. Why is there so much division in America if we all follow the same Constitution? Two reasons. One, it's not what the Bible says. It's how you interpret the Bible and how you apply it. But just like with American politics, it's not necessarily what the Constitution says or how you read it, how you interpret it, how you apply it. It's also who do you listen to? If you listen to Fox News, you tend to be conservative. If you listen to MSNBC, you kind of be liberal and democratic. And so it's the tension of the two, but but there's a couple of reasons for it. And this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. Augustine in 358, he said, In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. What that means is there's some core doctrines that if you don't believe these things, you're probably not a Christian. If you don't believe in the, the holiness of Jesus, The infallibility of the scripture, if you don't believe he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, went to the cross, died for our sins, went to the grave, was resurrected three days later, and ascended into heaven, then there's probably some problems in how we can walk together. But there's a whole lot of stuff that are non-essentials. Stuff like Calvinism or Arminianism, stuff like women in ministry or women aren't allowed in ministry. There's all types of style of worship, all these type things. And so what happens is denominations form when people make non-essentials essentials. And we could break it down a little bit farther. Denominations form when people overcorrect doctrine or overcorrect culture. Meaning there's, a, there's an issue in the church. We see this in a reformation. There's an issue in the church. And so to fix that issue, we swing the pendulum way over this way. And then to swi- fix it again, we swing it way over this way. So that's one reason. Two is denominations form over power struggles. When there's great leaders that are men of God who are powerful and they want to do something their way or their own way, usually most denominations trace back to one particular man or woman of God. But three, this is my... Well, in personal opinion, I believe there's some negative denominations. I also think denominations are a good thing. He said, well, how could you say division is a good thing? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about these divisions of diversity in the church. He said, you're like a body. One body part can't say to the other, like, why are you the eye and why am I the hand? I believe that doesn't just apply to the local church. I believe it pl- applies to the church. Meaning this, when in Revelation, you see the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches. He doesn't write the letters to the church of Christ Chapel, First Baptist, First United Methodist, Faith Church, Church of the Highlands. You see those letters. God doesn't see the church through the brand or through the name that's on the door. He sees the church based on a regional geographical location. He said to the church at Ephesus, right. To the church of Galatia, right. To the church of Laodicea, right. So God sees our church this morning Not from the perspective of this room, but of our whole geographical area. So our unity is not just based in this church, but of all the entire area. And so we need different types of churches to reach different types of people. Same way with the United States military. We have one military, four different branches. You know why? The Marines, the Navy, and the Army could not survive without the Air Force. That's why we had to create the Air Force in the 1940s. They needed us. Right? So so you need all four because all four have different missions for the same mission. In the same way, I believe different denominations carry the same mission of the Great Commission in different ways or different forms. And and to be honest, this is one of my heart cries. I pray and I work hard for unity in the shoals between churches and denominations. Our church fights. During COVID, we had over 50 pastors from different churches and denominations together together praying for one another during COVID. Like we work hard for this. That's why we pray for other churches every single Sunday morning vocally. I, I tell you, And this is not to brag on chapel. A lot of churches would not do that because they don't want to promote another brand of a church. We don't care about the brand of the church. We care about God moving in our city. So we're okay to pray for pastors by name. We're okay We're okay if we build relationships with other churches. We're okay to promote other churches because it's not about what we do. It's about what God does. Question four, how does the Bible support people with exceptional needs and disabilities? Meaning, how how does the Bible interact with people who have learning disabilities, special needs, disabilities, exceptional needs? And to me, this is an incredible question because I believe we don't talk about this enough that there's tons of people with disabilities in the Bible, whether they're blind, they're deaf, they're mute, they can't walk. You look at Mephibosheth in, in 1 Samuel. Mephibosheth couldn't walk and take care of himself. People take care of him. And so what's interesting is in life, in, in world views, many times we set a caste system of ourselves. Rich people, poor people, different races. And then we usually put disabled people in a class to themselves. But this is a couple of myths that I believe are in church world. Myth number one is this. God does not love people with disabilities or exceptional needs. You may not think that is true, but there are denominations of people who think that if someone has disabilities, it's because God cursed them. Or well, you can take it back to Scripture. It's people that say, well, who sinned, his mom or his father? And I they think they're a byproduct of sin. And so you have to realize that every single life has kingdom value and kingdom potential doesn't matter if it's a poor child in the middle of the sub-Saharan Africa or a child who has disabilities here in America. Every life has value and kingdom value in it. Two, the second myth is people with disabilities or exceptional needs are not gifted. I would argue they're probably more gifted. You say, well, how could you say that, Pastor? People with exceptional needs have hypersensitivity. They, have, they discern things so much better than many times we do. They, they, they can pick up people's emotions and attitudes, and they also have a strong dependence on God because they don't have anything else to depend on. They rely on other people to help them. They rely on Jesus to help them more than them helping themselves. So many times they're even more gifted. And there's a couple people, when I was growing up, we lived in this little trailer next door to my great-great-aunt for a couple of years. And she had two grandsons that she was raising because they came out of an abused environment. So one, one of the cousins, they're much older than me, one was completely independent and successful. The other one was non-functioning. He's never had a job. His name was James. And some of them being five years old, six years old. I'd walk next door because my great aunt would throw down fried peach pies. I'm not talking about gas station fried peach pies. I'm talking about cooked in lard peach pies. <laughs> Sausage and gravy, like the whole nine. And so I'd go, and no lie, even to this day, James can answer every single question on Jeopardy. Every question. Not miss anything. And he yells every answer at the TV. Like he's gifted in ways that I am not gifted. There's people in this church that are gifted and use their gifts. Allison Sellers, one of my favorite people in the church. Greets. She'll be at Adopt-A-Block next week working and serving the people of West Florence. She's probably greeted you from her wheelchair here at the church. Chad Phillips, who I love watching worship, he plays the air drums as we're worshiping. He loves watching A play. Like there's gifts that are available and service that is available to every single person in the church. Because 1 first, first Peter 4.10, God has placed every person with a gift to use it to serve the good for the body. But myth number three: people with exceptional needs or learning disabilities can't understand the gospel. So this one's tough, and it comes from two different perspectives. If you think the gospel is a doctrine to be believed or to be known and understood, that will make you think one way. If you think the gospel is a heart cry between an orphan and a father to become a child of God, and it's a heart matter, it changes the game completely. And so there's quite a few scriptures about it. One, Matthew, I think I have them up here. Matthew 18, at, at the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Like that scripture is this child. Who didn't understand who Jesus was he didn't understand the doctrine of election or predestination but Jesus invited him in to sit on his feet he said the person who is like this child who humbles himself to sit with Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven Romans 10 10 says this for with the heart one believes everybody say with the heart with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved so it's not a matter of my mind comprehending all the nuance of doctrine. It's by my heart believing that Jesus is all that I need to be saved. And with the heart, one believes that justified. And with the mouth, he confesses that Jesus is Lord. But there's another scripture in 1 Corinthians 7. It says this, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Like that scripture to me does not fit in my doctrine, in my theology, to be be completely honest with you. If I take it at the surface value, what it's saying is the family, if the family, if the mother is worshiping jesus and living holy and serving god that blessing flows down into her kids even if her husband is not serving jesus so what that tells me is mom and dad you have a lot more responsibility than you think you do you are responsible not just to walk with jesus but to walk in walk with jesus in a way that blesses your children to walk in the blessings of jesus as well so i think one people with exceptional needs they can believe with their heart and confess with their mouth Two, I think they can have childlike faith where they can sit at the feet of Jesus and trust Jesus with this childlike faith. And three, I think the family brings a covering, a protection for them as well. Question number five, why are there so many versions of the Bible and which version is the most appropriate when discussing Christianity with non-Christians or even amongst Christians of different denominations? So there's a ton of denominations, ton of Bible translations, and here's the reason why. The the Hebrew language and the Greek language are not languages that directly translate to English. So when you study Greek, Greek word, one word may have five meanings that are all different within the context that they're found in. For example, the word love, there's agape love, phileo love. There's, there's one, there's multiple words for love, but in America we only have one word for love and it is love. And so when you translate the Bible, you're trying to fit the best interpretation by the context So when you're translating the Bible from from Greek or from Hebrew over, there is some nuance with how that word is translated. But the other side of that is many of our Bible translations are paid for by denominations. So those denominations try to make sure they pick the words that back up their doctrine correctly. Case in point, years ago there was um, Jimmy Swaggart debated this Muslim apologist and as he's debating this Muslim apologist, Jimmy Swaggart is preaching, preaching, the word of God says, and the word of God says this. He's just going to town. It's when he's done, the Muslim apologist says, whose name is on, on that Bible? Jimmy Swaggart said, well, it, it, it says Holy Bible. He said, no, no, below that, what's it say? Jimmy Swaggart says, it's King James Bible. He said, oh, King James Bible. He said, well, I have the President Ronald Reagan Bible right here. I'm going to use that next. And so he used it as a way to say, your Bible's been translated so many times, the King James Version was literally published by the king of England. And he used it, the doctrine of election came from the King James Version of the Bible, where King James wanted to make sure that people knew their spot, that the rich people and the the royalty were here because God chose them to be here. You paupers and you poor people are here because God chose you to be here. And they used it to back up their doctrine. A couple years ago, I ended up with the ESV Version of the Bible, because I was using a new King James version of the Bible and my little kids tore out a few pages of my Bible. So I felt like a hypocrite preaching with half of first Kings and second Kings missing. So I went along a journey to figure out which version of the Bible I wanted to be a part of. And so this will help you understand the different translations of the Bible. There's three terms, there's paraphrase, thought for thought, and word for word. Word-for-word means when people interpreted the Bible or translated it, they try to do a word-for-word translation. They translated each word into the English equivalent. Thought-for-thought means they try to take the thought or the phrase and translate that phrase into English. Paraphrase means they just kind of summarize that scripture in English. So when I was looking, I ended up with the ESV because it was the closest word-for-word translation I could find that was still readable. If you try to read it in a linear Bible, they are almost impossible to read. They're very difficult. Into the ESV, also the ESV is translated from manuscripts that are around 300 to 400 AD, meaning they're very close to the original manuscripts. The Message Bible, the Passion Translation, they are paraphrases. Right, so I, I use the ESV to study. I use the ESV to preach from. I will use other versions for my prayer time or devotional reading, like the NLT or the NIV. I would not recommend you using the Message Bible or the Passion Translation as your primary scripture. They are literally someone's interpretation of the scripture they're writing to you. I would use something that's more lined up with what God said. But I will say this. Somebody asks, what's the best version to use? This one. The best translation for you to use is the one you will actually read, you'll understand, and you'll apply. I could care less if it's the NIV, the ESV, the NLT. I don't care it, whatever NTs in there. I could care less. Just read it. Like, just read the Bible. If you can't understand the ESV, get an NLT. If you can't understand the NLT, get the message. It doesn't. Just get the Word of God in your soul and your spirit. Understand it and actually do it. Next one, question six, how should the church interact with the homosexual community in Florence? I'm unsure how to invite someone who is gay to church when they've only experienced anger slash hate from church members. Um, So that is key. And I'll tell you, I know you can't win somebody to Jesus by attacking them. I do know that. I think Jesus demonstrated very clearly that with the woman caught in the act of adultery, he didn't attack her in her sin. He he showed her mercy and pointed her way out of her sin. Right, so I don't think you're going to win the world of Jesus by telling them, like the bullhorn guy who stands at the corner and yells at people, you're going to hell. I don't think that works. I don't think it works by attacking one particular group of people and saying their sin is completely worse than everybody else's sin. My personal opinion is this, that I believe the homosexual community is not just a a community of, of what we call sin, I believe it's a political community as well. I believe what has happened is for many years the church picked this one sin to attack more than every other sin because most people at the time didn't struggle with that particular sin. So the easiest way to make yourself feel holier than now is to pick the thing you don't deal with and start attacking that of everybody else. I think for that, for about 25, 30 years, from the 70s to the early 2000s, that was the the mantra. Until the homosexual community said, we don't have to take this, we can start fighting back. They didn't fight back from a pulpit, they fought back through politics. And then people got scared of the church because now it's not just a a, a theological debate, now it's a political war, and now the church is scared to death. And my own personal opinion, John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe when it comes to any sin, especially homosexuality, grace and truth is the way to address it. Not just grace, I think if you give grace without truth, that's not grace at all. I think if you give truth without grace, that's not truth at all. I think you have to be full of both in order to reach people for Jesus. But also, be sensitive to the root that's lying below the surface. So many times we just attack the the fruit of what we see, but actually beneath the surface is something much more deeper and more difficult to deal with. It's not just just change your mind to repent. It, you know, there's a lot more. One study said this. In research with 942 non-clinical adult participants, gay men and gay women reported a significantly higher rate of childhood molestation than did heterosexual men and women. Forty-six percent of homosexual men, in contrast to seven percent of heterosexual men, reported homosexual molestation as children. of lesbian women, in contrast to 1% of heterosexual women, reported homosexual molestation. What that's telling me is there's a whole lot of trauma and heartbreak and pain in the homosexual community. And so when you attack it, you're just reinforcing that pain. So here's this from the American Psychological Association. Things that are lying beneath the surface. One is unhealthy childhood relationships with females. What that means with men, it was a mom who smothered her little boy, removed any male influences from his life, and smothered him and criticized any masculine behavior whatsoever. The same thing with females, ended up producing homosexuality. Distorted concepts of gender, where there's gender confusion, whether because a, a boy tried to uh, play with dolls and bubble was like, my boy don't play with dolls, you ain't being gay in my house. Like it caused gender confusion. Because men raise babies just like women do. Or if a girl is a tomboy and you start saying, thinking she's actually a boy, it causes gender confusion. Uh, three, feeling incongruent with the one's gender, that kind of same concept. Four, problems with relationships with other males, meaning they weren't accepted by other males. Or there was no father in the home. So they actually despise men and it actually leads them the opposite way. Sexual conditioning by somebody in authority. We see this in the Catholic Church with their... Chaos of a scandal where people are actually being conditioned. We see this with the gymnastics thing that happened in Michigan, all types of things. Sexual abuse, like we just said. Certain biological and physical issues drive uh, homosexuality. and Certain emotional and psychological problems. So I say all that to say this. You're not just sharing the gospel with somebody. You're dealing with somebody who has an immense amount of trauma in their life. They have trauma from a father or from a mother or from somebody in, in leadership or authority over them that hurt them and caused them pain. They may have problems or issues with the church that caused trauma. And so it's not just repent and turn. It's repent and turn. But what are we going to repent of? Like there's an identity issue going on. There's a pain issue going on. There's all types of issues. So real quick, this is my, how I would do it. If you're going to share the gospel with somebody in the homosexual community, build a relationship Don't think you're going to stand in the corner and preach at them and it's going to work. Don't think you're going to stand in the pulpit and preach at them and it's going to work. Build a relationship, an authentic relationship. Be compassionate like Jesus. Don't try to be the bullhorn guy trying to condemn them. Be compassionate. Pray for them. Don't share the gospel with somebody you've never prayed for. Prayer prepares the way for the gospel. Bring them to church with you. Why is that important? Because the homosexual community has been a refuge of those who feel like they've been rejected by mainstream community. They find a safe place in the homosexual community. They feel like the church rejects them already. And so many times people that come out of homosexuality leave both communities and end up isolated and chaotic and stressed out and anxious in every other way because they don't feel like the church is a safe community. Bring them with you. Don't invite them. Bring them to church with you. You're their safe place. Four, uh, five, point them to Jesus, not religion, not the church, but point them to the gospels and Jesus. Say, this is how Jesus sees you and this is how Jesus loves you. Be prepared to answer their questions. Their questions like, Am I, was I born gay? And how, how do, do I, can I be a gay Christian? Do I have to change this? Do I need to get divorced with my same-sex partner? Be prepared to answer those questions. And then finally, be patient. Don't expect an answer just be present in their life question seven why do people in bible times live to be much much older than the average life expectancy today of 80 they didn't have the stress of social media so it made it much easier (laughs) they also didn't have democracies and voting every four years so it made it much easier no in genesis 6 it says this the lord said my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh his day shall be 120 years old Gerontologists have actually found that this is probably the age, the maximum age. There's a few people that bypass that age, but this is, for the most part, the maximum age of human life. And so why is it that when there's some people in the Bible, like right before Noah's time was living like 900 years and 800 years, 600 years. Well, if you remember the Garden of Eden, Adam ate of not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also the tree of life. And so I think as they ate of the tree of life, it actually increased that time. But once they were kicked out of the garden, they could no longer eat of the tree of life. That whatever juice is in that fruit, the fountain of youth, whatever it is, began to wane. The gas started running out. So it went from 900 to 800. Then when Noah's ark came, it immediately drops very quickly back to normal lifespan. So I believe that is what is happening in Genesis chapter 6. Question eight, why do some churches have a scheduled revival time and others don't? Isn't it supposed to be a personal experience? Meaning, why do we schedule revivals? We don't schedule revivals. But revival is an improvement in the condition or strength of something. So there's times the church needs revival. The problem with the word revival, it means different things to different people. I was with the pastor from Kentucky this week. He said, I was using the word revival like just, to, you know, God, revive our community, revive our church. He's like, and I'd say the word revival and people were just like, hmm. Like turn their back to it. He didn't realize in Kentucky because there's such a history of revivals there, that revival of them meant this: that if there was a member in your church who had backslidden or hadn't been at church in a long time, these are much smaller country churches, they would say we're scheduling a revival and we need to bring John Doe or we need to bring Brian Holden back to church so he can get saved again. Say so bring them and they would literally have services calling to repentance. Until Brian got saved, they're going to have church until it happens. It could last one day, one month, two months, three months. I say we bring it back. (laughs) So that mentality was it's a way to manipulate people to come back to church. But true revival is this. Renewal is personal. Renewal is a personal revival. It's when God does something new in you. He brings you back to your first love or the passion of salvation. It's when God begins to stir your spirit and strengthen you again. Revival is corporate. That's when when God does something in our church to revive our hearts, our passion, our strength, the mission of our church, the passion of our church, again. An awakening is for the community at large. It's an overflow of the church. We see the community changed. We see the crime rates decrease. In the Great Welsh dev- Revival, the alcohol rates were almost went to nothing after the revival. Like it affect the entire community at large. And so we should be praying for one, God, renew my heart. Renew my passion. Renew my commitment to the church. Renew my worship. Renew my, my, my fervency for your word. But also, God, revive our church. Draw people. Create in us a, a passion and a fire and a power again so we can see our community changed and transformed. Question nine, and I'll end with this one. Question nine is this. In last week's sermon, you talked about the early church only having baptisms once per year. Will you please share those documents and or resources that tell about this? So with that said, and sometimes I I speak in in language that's probably too direct about other denominations. I shouldn't do that. But with this one is one of my frustrations with Florence, Alabama, and I, I love how the Church of Christ has kept the Word of God first and primary. I love their commitment and dedication to the Word of God. I love and appreciate their commitment to holiness. I do not like the way they've turned holiness into legalism. And what that means is when you start putting up walls where God did not put up walls, sometimes the only way I explain it is if, if you had young kids, like we had young kids, if they're playing in the front yard and there's a road that runs by your house, many parents would put a, like a chain link fence or a picket fence in front of the house to keep your kids from running out into the street. Right? It's a good parenting, protecting boundaries. But if you get more afraid of a parent, you become that helicopter mom. you like, well, that fence is not big enough. They may be able to jump that fence or climb that fence. We'll put up a privacy fence. And after a year, you're like, yeah, that privacy fence is great, but my kids are getting a little bit bigger. Maybe they can still climb over. I'll put up a wall. And then you got a wall, so now they feel safe. And after a year, like, no, oh, maybe there's a trampoline. They could jump over the wall. Now, let's put some Constantina wire on the top so they can't get out at all. And what started is Freedom and protection ended up being legalism of bondage. It actually becomes a prison. And I think many times with, with legalism, it starts out with something good and ends up being something that brings bondage. So, the doctrine of baptism in the Church of Christ Church to me is one of those things. And I have a high commitment to baptism. I think baptism is the first step of obedience and following Jesus. I believe it's powerful, I believe it does something in you and through you, but I do not believe it's salvation. The reason for that is you could get baptized before Jesus died. John was baptizing, Jesus' disciples are baptizing, they're all baptizing. The man, the thief on the cross, didn't get baptized. Also, we have many documents. There's a a document called the Dadash, which is literally the lessons of the apostles to the church. And the Dadash is literally written from the apostles, that most people believe, and it's instructions on how to pastor churches. And there's actually a whole section in there about baptism and the right way to baptize But early, early in the church, around 100 AD, this is what was the norm. Baptism was usually administered once a year on Easter Sunday. Early in the 3rd century, it was customary for those to be baptized to fast on Friday and Saturday and to be baptized very early on Sunday morning, which was the time of the resurrection of Jesus. After all the candidates were baptized, they went in procession to the meeting place where the neophytes, which is the word for the new congregants, joined the rest of the congregation and partook of communion for the very first time. The newly baptized believers were then given water drink as a sign they were thoroughly cleansed both outside and inside. And they were also given milk and honey as a sign of the promised land in which they were now entering into. That's from the story of Christianity, which is a, a seminary textbook by Justo Gonzalez. It's a, it's a great concept. But I don't want to dismiss the fact that baptism is vitally important. But I think in the Bible, in the need of trying to make it vitally important, we've actually not made it very important at all. We made it more tradition than we have this type of experience. Because what happens is this type of experience, they, if they got saved the week after Easter, they'd wait a year. As the church moved forward, there was no longer mostly Jews getting saved. It was Gentiles. They actually had a three-year window we call catechism in a lot of the other denominations. And the reason for that was this. In an exploding church that was being accused of, of heresy and blasphemy and a growing church is being accused of being against the Roman government and against the, the, the Jewish tradition in church. There There's people that were disguising themselves as Christians to get on the inside of the church and to destroy the church from in the inside out. So in order to prevent that, they would have confession. Then they'd have affirmation, which means they would test you to make sure you were actually saved before they baptized you. Because being baptized is not an individual event of you washing away your sins. It was individual, but it's also you now entering into the congregation or the family of God or the kingdom of God as a community of believers. So confession, affirmation, then baptism, then membership. What's what's interesting is in America, we have spontaneous baptisms. We have baptized anybody, but in Africa, in Iran, in China, in many of the countries across the world— that are in non-Christian areas, if you were to get saved in Africa, in the sub-Saharan desert, there'd be a one to three year time period of you learning who Jesus is, demonstrating you're walking with him and following him before they baptize you. Same thing in China and Iran. Why is that, pastor? Because they wanna make sure you're truly a believer for they mark you to the rest of the world as a believer. They wanna protect the congregation, from people who say they're saved getting baptized and saying they're part of the church and living their life, not like Jesus, but like the world, because it actually harms the church, especially the underground church, that has to maintain its purity to survive. We're living in a day and age where that's almost needed in America. What I say is that I was talking to a pastor, and they asked the question about the homosexual, you know, how's your church view the homosexual community deal with the homosexual community? He said they were about to have a, a baptism. There's a lady that wanted to get baptized, but she was married to another female. They were a homosexual couple and they had kids. And at first it was like, whosoever wants to get baptized, we should baptize. But then as they dug deeper into it, it was they didn't want to to get baptized. They want to invite all their friends and all the homosexual community with them to get baptized. Because what they're actually using it for was a political movement to gain access and influence in the church... Because if they could all do that, then they could all be members and they could all vote and they could actually steal the church and change it in another direction. I'm saying that to say this, America is no longer America. America is now more like China and Iran, where you have to protect the integrity of the church and the integrity of the gospel almost by any means necessary. Meaning, we need to make sure that if we're going to get baptized, we're doing it for the right reasons. We're not doing it because mama and daddy wanted me to. I'm not doing it because my wife is mad at me. If I get baptized, maybe she'll forgive me. Like, I'm getting baptized because I know that Jesus is my king. And I'm going to get baptized so the whole world knows that he's my king, whether I live or whether I die, whether I'm persecuted or whether I'm not. And I'm going to live my life in a way that protects him and his kingdom and his reputation in the church as well. Father, we thank you so much. Just for your church, we thank you for your word these few moments. I thank you for the opportunity just to answer some of these amazing questions by these people that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for knowledge, and for wisdom. And, Father, I just pray for a seeker's heart in this room. I pray for people who are hungry for your word, to dig in your word, to study your word, to read your word, to memorize your word, but are also thirsty for your spirit, to be renewed by your spirit, rejuvenated by your spirit, hungry and thirsty for the things of your spirit. And, Father, I pray for a church that's united and on fire for you. Father, I pray for a church that looks like the book of Acts, that looks like the New Testament. Father, a church full of unity and power and love, not just for each other, but for those outside the walls of the church. Father, as we mentioned, those that have exceptional needs, those of the homosexual community. Father, those who have never heard the word before. Father, give us a heart and a passion and a burning fire to be the love of Jesus and the word of Jesus to all those who need it the most. And Father, we bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name.